You're listening to TIP. The top 1% of wealth historically save about 40% of their gross income, and they've been doing that for the last 100 years. Hey guys, I'm really excited to share an upcoming event hosted by the Investors Podcast Network. Beginning on Monday, October 17th, we're launching a stock pitch competition for you all to compete in, where the first place prize is $1,000 plus a year-long subscription to our TIP finance tool. If you're interested in this, please visit theinvestorspodcast.com slash stock dash competition for more information. The last day to submit your stock analysis will be Sunday, November 27th. And to compete, please make sure you're signed up for our daily newsletter, We Study Markets, as that's where we'll announce the winners. And all entries can be submitted to the email newsletters at theinvestorspodcast.com. Good luck. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jerry Feta, who is the founder and CEO of Wealth Dynamics, a financial firm that provides education and helps thousands of clients across the U.S. build wealth and achieve greater financial freedom. During this episode, Jerry discusses what the most important factors are to building wealth like the 1%, how much of your income you should be saving, and why Jerry prefers investments that generate passive income versus those that focus on capital appreciation. He also talks about how to become your own bank, and he shares multiple different strategies on how to use life insurance to build substantial wealth, as well as how to use it as a way to pay down your debt and save more money at the same time. Along with these practical applications, he outlines what specific type of policy, agent, and life insurance company we should be looking for, and so much more. So with that said, I really hope you enjoy today's episode with Jerry Feta. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, and today I'm joined by Jerry Feta. Jerry, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Rebecca. I'm happy to be on today. I wanted to have you on because when connecting with you, I just really enjoyed learning about your story. You and your wife achieved financial independence at quite a young age, and you did it in a way that I think is quite unique. We don't talk about that strategy a lot on our show, which we're going to dive into in more detail today. But before we dive kind of into your strategy, for our listeners who don't know you yet, can you start off by briefly talking about what you do and how you got there? Yeah, for sure. I own a company called Wealth Dynamics. And um, what we do is we help families become financially literate. Uh, we help them build solvency. And then we help them achieve greater levels of financial freedom in their lives. And then really the goal is for them to share that with other people. Um, money is something we should learn about as kids growing up even. And then so for me, I didn't learn about it at all. So I grew up lower income. You know, I was a food stamps kid. You know, my, my parents, we lost our house, cars got repoed, all sorts of things, right? Money was always a topic for me that was kind of a pain point. And um, as I started getting older and realizing it's kind of a non-optional system, like you're, you're going to have to deal with finances in one way or another as an adult in the modern world. That's really when I got into my company, Wealth Dynamics. And, and I started more in like the traditional retail side of the industry. You know, as a financial advisor doing retirement plans and mutual funds and kind of all the normal stuff. 
as I learned more, it kind of evolved into what do I do what I do now, which is more based on historically what the top one percent of wealth have actually done and mimicking and applying a lot of those same strategies for the everyday person. As I mentioned, I really was drawn to your approach because it is different than what most people do. And so I wanted to dive more into it today. But I am wondering, so you teach clients how to improve their financial circumstances. And there are kind of, I guess, two schools of thoughts of how to do that. You can increase your income or you can reduce your expenditures or a combination of both. I'm just wondering what your approach is and how you kind of teach your clients that piece. Definitely, we focus more on the income. It used to be a Dave Ramsey endorsed local provider back in, in my early years, and it was very much budgeting. You reduce, live below your means. And um, I tell people now, you know, you can budget all the way down to homeless. It's not going to build wealth. And, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't budget. If you look at Fortune 500 corporations, they all have a budget, they all have accountants, they have all these things. But the main thing that they're focused on is they're focused on their top line income. If I earn more, my means can increase. And so my philosophy behind it now, always earn more than you spend and always earn a lot. And so as long as I'm earning more than I spend and I'm keeping my income high and always growing, then you know the budget is, is something I should have, but it's not the main thing. Can you talk a bit about what you think are, I guess, the most important factors to building wealth that you think maybe most people are not using or underutilizing? Yeah. So this one, I call it the triangle of wealth. And it's very simple. And it's something that I think gets overlooked because it is so boring. But it comes down to three things. And it's earn, save, invest. Now, there's a lot of different nuances on like, you know, how do I earn and how much and where do I save and what vehicles do I use and which investments do I select? But at a very basic level, if I earn income and I save it and I invest it and I do that consistently it's going to turn out you know, with me having more money than I started. It's kind of like with exercising and dieting. It's just, you know, I just need to make sure that I, I burn more calories than I consume. There's a lot of different methods and ways of doing that. Generally, though, if I stick with that, I'm going to make progress with my physical condition, just like generally with my financial condition. So where I see a lot of people going wrong is with earning, that's something that, that we almost get taught is a bad thing, right? It's either don't earn too much, or if you are earning, it should be passive. Just earn income, right? If you're focused on growing your income, no matter whether it's passive, active, W-2 wages, business income, it doesn't matter. Just focus on growing the income. And then the other part is saving. And this is something that you know I saw early in my 20s. The top 1% of wealth historically save about 40% of their gross income. And they've been doing that for the last 100 years. And so when I saw that number, that's, that's substantial. Right? It's, a, it's a big percentage of my income coming off the top. And that's in addition to paying taxes. And so that really is the linchpin. If I earn a lot, I need to be able to save you know, 40% or more. And then the question then becomes, well, where do I save that? And so, for example, I used, to, I, I used to put it in things like retirement plans and Wall Street and banks. For me now, it's a lot more in things that I can control. So I like to use life insurance. I like to use gold and silver. Things that I actually can... can you know, they're tangible. I can see them and, and see, you know, feel them and, and control them. And I also can borrow against them as well, which is a strategy we can talk about in a little bit. And then the investing piece is, you know, I like to invest for passive income. If I'm trying to save 40% of my income and I invest in something that produces more income, it helps me get there faster because that new income that I'm earning from my investments, it cycles back through, it increases my savings rate. And this whole triangle kind of goes in a revolution. A lot of people get bored with that and they look for like shortcuts. And it's kind of like if, I, if I'm looking for shortcuts, maybe I find them, maybe I don't, but for sure this works. And so that's the main fundamentals that I, I teach and stick to. 
I'm going to kind of use that earn, save, invest guideline to kind of form our conversation today. You mentioned passive income streams. I think that's kind of a convoluted term because we hear that you need multiple passive income streams, but what do you think are the best ones to utilize, especially if someone is, say, already has a full-time job, they can't maybe do a side hustle or something of that nature? What do you recommend are good passive income streams? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one. So I say the word passive, but really there is no such thing as truly passive income. Right? Like that would be income where I'm basically dead and somehow I still make money and I have no effort put out or no attention on it. Right. There's a gradient scale of less passive and more passive. So less passive, I'm working road construction with a shovel all day, and that's you know trading a lot of heavy effort and time for money. More passive would be something like lending, where I, I loan money out on investment, I get paid interest income, and I do need to be aware of it. And there might be a little bit of work put into it, but it's a lot less than other options. That's kind of the first thing to look at. So I always gravitate towards more passive. Obviously, when I'm, when I'm doing investments, for me as a business owner, when I'm looking at exerting my time, I have to look at return on time invested. Right? My hour of time has a certain dollar value to it. And so I really have to look at, and this is whether a business owner is doing this or, or a, a, you know, somebody that's working a day job, I have to look at how much is my time worth and am I getting that value for that hour exchanged? And so like I could go do all sorts of investing, but if it requires my time, it's taking me away from my business, which is where I get my highest return on time invested. I'm always thinking about, okay, more passive. And then it also does need to be something that's secure and reliable. Every investment's a good idea till it isn't. And <laughs> that's kind of the thing to look at is, okay, I can say I'm going to get passive income, but is this something that long-term, it will pan out? I'm not going to lose money. It's going to preserve my, my, my principle that I've invested. And these are all considerations. So to lead into the answer on your question, that's kind of how I view it. I'm very big on when I do my own investing for passive income, secure private lending, and also seller finance real estate. And those are both forms of mimicking exactly what a bank does with a mortgage, right? When you buy a house, the bank is not asking to be your partner. They don't want to cut up the profits. They're just like, hey, borrow my money. If you don't pay, we're going to secure it with the house. I'll have the house, the house as collateral, but just pay me my interest income every month. And the reason being is they have a business to run. They've, they've got their return on time invested other, where, other places in their business. And so that interest income for them is a very passive and reliable source. I have heard you talk about how you prefer investments that generate income versus capital appreciation. Can you talk a bit about why you prefer that and maybe the pros and cons of either strategy? Totally. Yeah. So basically, I mean, those are kind of the two main types of investments. Sometimes you'll get a blend of both. So when you look at income investing, it's, it's the idea of I'm going to buy an asset and it's going to pay me every month or every quarter, whatever that, that mode of payment would be. And it again comes down to the passive thing. If it's passive, that's great. That's what I want. And so that again helps me, you know, obviously increase my income rate, increase my savings rate, reinvest a lot sooner. The equation that I try and solve for financial independence. It's called PI greater than set, passive income greater than savings, expenses, and taxes. And so if I get you know, X amount of dollars invested, and it's giving me a certain annual yield, you know, let's say it's 10% or 12% per year, that's going to spit off a certain amount of passive income and allow me to cover that savings, expenses, and taxes without ever having to sell an asset and without ever touching my principal. Right? And if I build the savings into it, then I'm always reinvesting that 40% on top and it's always expanding and growing. And that's how you create generational wealth. So that's why I like the income side. 
I'm also a very simple guy. So I don't like having to time markets, determine when to buy, when to sell. I don't like having to do capital gains tax planning because I got out of an investment and now there's a tax burden that I've got to focus on. I don't like things that can be manipulated. So things that go up and down. Generally, there's a lot of manipulation in those markets. That's kind of why I gear towards the income side. On the appreciation side, it really is just the idea of I'm going to buy something and I'm, I'm going to sell it at a higher price than I paid. Not to say that that model is wrong. If you base it on intrinsic value, then that's very valid. You can say, okay, I'm going to buy this business because of the earnings in the business and the profitability of it. It has this value and I know that I'm going to be able to get more than that later. The problem lies in the fact that there's a lot of knowledge and understanding that goes into being able to calculate and understand the value of something in relation to the price of it. And I don't think most people have that knowledge and most people don't go that deep. They look at what's trending on Reddit or Twitter or what did Elon Musk say to buy? And then they'll just go buy it, right? And they hope that they can sell. Sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. And, and it's either a win or a lose scenario. There's a lot less control there. The other aspect too is if I continually have to sell assets to generate income, I'm actually putting myself at risk of running out of assets. Right At some point, if I sell all the assets, they're when my income source. And then there's the, the factor of timing. Am I selling at a high price or a low price? There's also taxes that I have to then consider. And there's just a lot more that goes into that style of investing. Not to say that appreciation is bad, but for me, the income, the income side is much better and much easier to handle. And for the average person, that's going to get them a lot further than trying to time out markets and, and buy and sell. I agree. It's an interesting approach because it's also just has to do with the time value of money, where if you're getting kind of you're getting paid every single month from your investment, that money is worth more today than in the future. And so maybe you can do something better with it today. So I thought that was a really interesting strategy that you had. We're going to dive more into what you invest in and your strategy in a bit. I kind of want to jump back to the savings aspect first, because you mentioned 40%. That is quite a large number. And I'm just wondering, for a lot of our millennial listeners who might have debt of some sort, how do you think that they should think of saving and being able to reach that high level of savings to achieve financial independence or just achieve their goals earlier when maybe they have debt to pay off? How do you think about that situation? That's a really good point to bring up, Rebecca. I'm a millennial. I'm 30. Our generation, we've been loaded down with the most unsecured debt that I've ever seen between you know student loans and, and credit cards and all this easy money. And then after the fact, it's like, okay, great. I've got six figures in debt and I'm trying to figure out life. What do I do? Debt basically for us as consumers, we look at it and we're like, I have this payment. The bank doesn't look at it that way. For them, it's an asset. In this equation, the debt actually does exist as an asset. We're just on the wrong end of it. And that's the first thing is I teach people to change the way you think of it. Right now, you're the asset. You're producing the income for the investor. What if you could flip it? Now, the problem lies in the fact that you know with the way that our dollar works, it's, it's fiat. It's not backed by anything. The dollar actually is debt. It's borrowed into existence. One is not necessarily better than the other. The interest rate on the dollar is the inflation rate. Right, right now, that's about 9%. So it's kind of the equivalent of saving money is like having you know a 9% credit card that you've got an outstanding balance on and it's just going to go down by that rate. That's the interest that we're paying. I teach first things first is if, if we're trying to build wealth, we can't have consumer debt. We do need to get rid of it because that's taking our income away and that's our ability to save, invest, and do all the other things we talked about. The problem is if I take cash and throw it out debt, I'm never going to see the cash again. You mentioned time value of money. So as soon as I pay off that dollar of debt, 
I'm also never going to be able to invest that dollar ever again. It's gone for the rest of my life. Most people don't think of that. When I had debt, I didn't consider that. So I was doing, you know, pay off my credit cards and, and do this all as fast as I possibly could. And then I would get done. And what would happen is I would be broke. And then something would happen and I'd have to go right back to the debt. And I never really got out of that cycle. That's kind of the way to view this and think about it. Obviously, increasing income is going to help quite a bit. The strategy that I use for getting people out of debt is actually to, to buy it back as an investment. Are you familiar with using life insurance as like a banking system? I wasn't until I found out about you. And so that is exactly why I okay. wanted to have you on today. Please explain that to us. I thought it was so fascinating. Basically, what we're looking at is... Um, so there's a very specific type of life insurance to use. It's called high early cash value dividend paying whole life insurance. That's a mouthful. I just call it the sacred account. And that's basically what that means. But it's basically you set up a life insurance policy where you can contribute funds. And the money that you put into it goes directly into a cash savings account. Those are going to grow typically at about a 3 to 5% annual rate. So it's much higher than what you're going to get at the bank. It's guaranteed against loss. It's guaranteed to grow. It's protected from taxation. It's protected from creditors, lawsuits. It's protected from a privacy standpoint. It's what's known as a unilateral contract, meaning if I put money in, I'm the only party that can touch or access that contract. So it's a very safe place to put money. However, what I can do is it's growing at that 3 to 5% rate. I can borrow against it and it's still going to earn 3 to 5%. And when I borrow, I can go then use that to pay off my debt, right? So if it's making 3 to 5, my cost to borrow might be somewhere between 1 and 3. So let's say on average, I'm making 4, my cost is 2. There's a 2% profit spread that I make on borrowing against my own, my own life insurance policy. So when I have debt, what I will do is I'll fund policy. And then I'll line my debts up by balance size. I'll go smallest balance to largest balance. As soon as I've got enough money in that life insurance policy to pay off the smallest debt, I'm going to borrow against it. I'm going to pay that debt off completely, like one fell swoop and, swoop and it's gone. The minimum payment that I used to make, I'm going to pay my policy loan back instead. So now I've taken my income, my debt to income ratio, I've lowered that and I've increased my savings rate because that payment that used to go to a bank now goes to my bank. And so I'm actually building up savings with that instead. And then the money that I was using for this the whole time grew while, while I was using it like it never left. So if I go through this progressively, by the time I pay off the debt, I've handled all of it, it's gone. All of the payments I used to make are now converted to savings. And then the money that I used to pay off all that debt is still in the account growing like it never left. So I'm out of debt, my savings rate has skyrocketed, and I have more money than I started with at the end of this. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. And most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial 
when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I think there's just so many interesting things about that strategy. I'm curious, why do you think most people don't know about this or maybe utilize it? Is it because it's hard to find an underwriter or an insurance company that will do that kind of policy? Yeah, that's definitely one of the reasons. So there's a few of them. So the first one is the number one buyer and, per, and, and owner of these life insurance policies in the, in the country are actually banks. They're using this as their own reserve system. And so they're not going to sell it to others because others would then use that instead of the bank. So there's a lot of incentive you know, for the banks to use it and have it, but not for others to be able to find out about it. They would rather have people putting money in checking accounts and, and savings accounts and mutual funds. The second one is you know, the insurance companies. There are a few of them. There's about a dozen of them that can design it this way. And that's also a factor. You've got to find the right company, somebody that will design it correctly. And then the other part is the design itself. It's not an easy strategy from like an agent standpoint. If you're working with an insurance agent, it's not common knowledge on how to design these. When you put a policy together, an agent will make a commission. When they design it the way that I'm talking about, they take about a 300% pay cut because they're reducing their commission in order to increase the cash value. If an individual agent is like in the business, they know about it. That's an ethical decision of do I make less money to do the right thing? If the consumer doesn't know it's an, it's an option even, who's going to know? I just sell the more expensive one and don't tell people about this. From a sales management standpoint, there's not a sales office in the country that's going to teach their producers to sell something that makes less money for the company. The insurance underwriters themselves, they're kind of they're not one way or the other on it. They're going to design whatever you tell them to design. It's the sales offices, the agents that either don't know how to do it 
because there's not the financial incentive for them to learn it and, and to, to distribute it as a product, or they do know how to do it, they're just not willing to take that 300% pay cut. Those are some of the reasons and factors when you dive into it, and you've probably seen a little bit now as you started looking at it, you start seeing it more and more. So there's little pockets and, and groups of people you can connect with and, and they're, you know, they're using it, they know all about it, and it's like common knowledge. But for the general populace, it's not something that many people know about at all. Do you have any details on maybe since you've been doing this for so long, like a particular company or policy design, what we should be looking for? The company that I like to use is called Guardian Life Insurance Company. My firm actually sets these up and designs these for people. If you're listening, you can reach out to us, send me an email, and and we'd be happy to get you some info on it. And so for me, I've had a couple of different companies I've used for my own personal policy in the past. Guardian in particular, I like them because they're more technology friendly. So it's more, it feels more like a login on a bank and you're just dropping money into an account. There's a lot less paperwork. It's less cumbersome. Some of the other companies I've worked with, with my own personal policy, that looks great on paper. And then I'm like, okay, well, how do I put money into this? So they're like, we'll print out this form, fill out five pages, sign it, mail it to us and send us a check. And I'm like, I can't tell you the last time I've had to send someone a check. That's like, that's, that's super inconvenient. With Guardian, I can log in. I just type in my password. I hook up my bank account and then I can dump money into it. I can take loans out of it and it just wires it right to me. And that's a big aspect of it is, is we mentioned, you know, why people don't know about it and the agents and all this stuff. But it also comes down, it's got to be easy to use. Like if it's something that I'm going to interact with this frequently, then it needs to be something that's simple for me to use. It's easy to do. And, and I don't have like this back off on, oh man, I've got to log in and hassle and deal with the thing to get the money out of it. That's really interesting to me. So you talked about when you buy a life insurance policy, it's used as a savings vehicle because you're earning that 3 to 5% you said just on what you put in. And then you said that you can borrow against it to pay down your debt. Can you talk a bit about other options of what you can do when you borrow against that money? How do you use it to build wealth? This is where it gets fun because paying off debt is like, that's a one-time thing. You should be you know, done with that and hopefully never have to go back to it. So last year, and I'll, I'll share some of the strategies I've done personally. Last year, I self-financed my car with it. I'm a business owner. And so I was going to buy a new car to get a tax deduction. So I got Audi e-tron. And so what I did is I took a policy loan and I used that to purchase the car. And then instead of making a car payment to the bank, I paid that back to my policy. And so the money that I used for the car is still growing like it never left. Plus, I'm making that payment to myself instead of them. And then there's a tax deduction. It's called a Section 179 deduction. If you're a business owner, you can buy a vehicle that weighs over 6,000 pounds. You can write off up to 100% of the purchase price. So I used that strategy on it as well. And so I was able to get a tax deduction, drive an awesome vehicle, and then also have the principal growing and making the payment to myself instead of the bank. That strategy is really interesting. I'm wondering, so when you are taking out the loan and borrowing against your policy, are there any, I guess, restrictions of how you have to pay it back? Or how does that work? It's completely flexible. So this part's good and bad. Technically, with a life insurance policy, you never actually have to pay it back. The reason being is there's a death benefit. When you pass away, if you have an outstanding loan, the death benefit will just pay off what's remaining. That gets touted is like you can, you can take a loan and never pay it back. I would never do that. It's kind of the equivalent of like owning a grocery store and saying, I never have to pay for groceries. Well, technically I do. I'm just stealing from my own store, right? So I should always pay the loan back. Now, 
basically I can pick how I do that. When I do a loan, I'm typically going to do it for one of two reasons. Either, like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm paying off debt. And so if I did that, I'm just going to take the old minimum payment that I used to have on the debt and I'm going to set up an auto loan repayment once a month and it's just going to draft out of my checking account and pay my policy loan. The second thing I'm going to look at is if I'm doing an investment, the income generated by that investment, I'm going to use that to pay off my policy loan. So I might do a real estate deal, like a private lending deal, for example, where I'm making 12% interest on $100,000. That's going to pay me $1,000 a month. And so that $1,000, i am just going to pay that every month towards my policy loan. And then that's going to service my loan for me while I'm making you know, interest on the real estate and then obviously the profit on the life insurance too. So I have a couple follow-up questions on that. So I guess the way to kind of think about this, if it makes sense, is the interest rate that you have to pay to pay back on your loan, is that lower, I guess, than typically than other loans? Is that kind of another perk about borrowing against your policy is that you get a lower rate? That is typically going to be lower. Now, it's not always going to be. I've seen you know car loans at 0%. Those are certainly going to be lower. The main thing to look at is the, the rate that you're borrowing at is a lower rate than what the policy grows at. And so if I'm growing at 3 to 5%, but my interest only cost me, let's say, two and a half, then I've got that spread of profit there. And that's really where I would take a loan is regardless of the rate, if I'm making money on the loan, it's almost like I'm getting paid to borrow the funds to use it for smart things, whether that's paying off debt or whether that's investing. Let's also talk a bit about the cash value that grows in the account. It grows at 3 to 5% per year. Do you ever take that money out or do you just leave that? That's kind of like your long-term investment or savings. I kind of leave that there. So you can take it out and it's treated just like any sort of, uh, of investment or account would be. If I have money that I've taken out that's less than the amount I've put in, that's considered my basis. It's the money that I put in in the first place. And so that's not taxable. Now, if I'm taking out more than I put in, then it's gain and that's where it's taxable. This is where the loan strategy comes in. Loans aren't taxable. So I'm always going to just borrow against the account and avoid the taxes altogether. And this is a strategy when you look at the wealthy. I, I know Elon did this last year with his stock. Very few people know this. Apple, their headquarters is set up in Ireland because Ireland at the time was a tax haven. So they're set up in Ireland where their headquarters receives all the profits. Anytime they need to bring money back to the US, they do it through loans. And the reason being is they don't want to pay the taxes to the United States government to bring the money back into the country. That's always a way out of taxation. And it's a way to, to have liquidity on funds. I can borrow against them. And you can do this with life insurance. You can do this with stock. You can do this with a house. You can do this with gold and silver. The reason I like this with life insurance is life insurance is guaranteed not to lose. right? So if I take a loan against stock, price of the stock might drop. And then I have a margin call where the bank's saying, Hey, we loaned you X amount of money and your stock's not even worth that anymore. You need to pay up or we're going to sell. And so that can never happen with the life insurance policy designed this way. So I don't have to think about that. And I can just have the funds there growing and borrow against them anytime. That's so interesting. So I'm wondering for our listeners who primarily are long-term stock investors, is a potential strategy for them to buy a policy and then take out a loan and borrow against it and then use that money to invest, say, in the stock market and hope that... I guess this is where maybe a potential risk comes in, but you hope that you will earn a higher return in your investment versus what you're paying back each month. You definitely could. And you hit it on the head. It's the risk. And this is everyone's own gambling if they want to do this or not. But it's the risk of does the stock perform at a rate higher than my loan? 
Um, if I'm buying, let's say, Home Depot stock and it's you know going to pay a dividend and I know it's stable, that's probably less risky than me putting it into like a micro cap tech stock and it's like very up and down and and you know or trying to buy Dogecoin with it, for example. Those are things you could do. The other aspect of it too is if it is yielding a dividend, you could always service your loan with your dividend. So if you're doing like a blue chip stock, that's a great way to have a dividend come through and still be able to pay some of that policy loan down with the dividend income. And then you don't necessarily have to rely on if the market's up or down to sell and repay. So I'm also wondering how this account works in an inflationary environment. I've heard you talk about how you're actually locking in your purchasing power. Can you talk a bit about that? Basically, in an inflationary environment, and you have to realize that, that with the fiat currency system like we have now, it's always going to be an inflationary environment. The more money we print, and that's how our economy works, the more inflation is going to happen. With an account like this, I am locking in the, the purchasing power from a standpoint of contributions. When, I, when I'm doing $1,000 a month, that's going to buy me units of, of death benefit with the insurance company. And that's locking them in at today's price. So if I have a, a whole life contract that's, you know, let's say I'm locking in 65 years of contributions, in 65 years, I'm still getting the price of what my death benefit was today. And so I'm locking in the value. The death benefit is actually what produces the dividend income as well. So it's kind of like my, my dividend is attached to that death benefit and I'm buying units of it, similar to like I would with shares of stock. And I'm locking in the ability to buy those at today's price based on the contract that I entered today. That definitely helps you get you know, more buying power on the front end. On the back end, generally speaking, inflation is going to be somewhere between 4 and 6% is what they're saying, you know, like midterm CPI is. Usually, if you look at real inflation, you can see charts that say it's probably double what CPI says. But with that, really, you know, I want to make sure that I'm not losing above and beyond inflation. And then I'm offsetting inflation usually with my active income and my passive income. So a lot of times what will happen is people will try and beat inflation through investing and they will take on more risk and then they'll actually lose money because that risk. And that's a greater rate than the inflation would have been if they would have just left it in the bank or not invested it in something riskier. When I'm investing, I'm looking at, okay, if inflation went up, you know, let's say by 10%, I want to increase my active income by 10%. I want to increase my savings rate by 10%. But I'm not necessarily trying to increase my investment returns by 10% because I'm adding in dollar for dollar an amount of risk with that. And so that's increasing the chance of losing money. Whereas with my active income, there's no risk there. I can just go earn more and save more and I'll be fine. Yeah, that was kind of my thinking behind the account because it only technically earns 3 to 5%. If inflation is above that, you're still off a bit, but then it's the trade-off if you invest somewhere else and you perhaps lose that money. It's just, you're kind of saying like a stable, safe way to make sure you're getting that fixed percentage during this time. Yeah, exactly. So if you put it in the account and that's the only thing you do with it, it's not going to outpace inflation. It will keep you safe. You know, you won't lose, you won't have taxes. There's a lot of other stuff it does, but you do need to, and this is where it encourages you to utilize the funds, right? You know, when we say we want to save for the purpose of typically investing. And so that's where we, we can beat inflation and produce more income and expand rather than kind of leaving it in the bank, which is what most people would do. This is not that kind of a system. And then what do you teach your clients about how to use this account as well as their 401ks as a savings vehicle? So how do you kind of figure out which one to prioritize? I'm not actually a big fan of the 401k. 
So the reason being is the 401k basically it, it relinquishes control of money. So if I would have used a 401k, I wouldn't be where I'm at today because I can't have that money till I'm 60. So what I, what I look at is instead of doing the 401k, because the 401k, the benefit is you get the free match. That's actually a deferred compensation plan by IRS law. So you're not actually getting a free match. When employers were surveyed, they said that for every dollar of match they're giving, they're reducing wages by at least 90%. It's your dollar that you're getting, but you've got to give up a dollar to have it. And then you can't have either of those dollars till you're 60. And in the meantime, it's in whatever funds you have, whether those are good or bad. I'm not a huge 401k fan. If you can self-direct the 401k, I think that's a little bit better just because you can do more alternative strategies. If you want to do stocks, great. If you want to do real estate, you can do that too. But it's not locked up on a short menu of fund options. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Now I'm kind of interested to move a bit more onto the investing side of things. I've heard you talk about how you aren't a fan of investing in the stock market. I'm just curious if you can elaborate on that and what your preferred method of investing is. Basically, for me with stocks, I used to be a financial advisor. So I did stocks, bonds, mutual funds, all of those things. When I look at investing, the root of that word actually means to clothe your capital. Right? So that's the etymology of what the word means. I think about clothing. When I pick out clothing, there's a few points that I'm going to look at and it actually would be the same for my money. Number one is I wouldn't pick out clothing that I didn't like. right? And most people would agree with that. I wouldn't pick out clothing that I didn't understand. I wouldn't pick out things that didn't fit me. I wouldn't pick out things that didn't fit the purpose of what they would be using. I would be using them for. Um, a great example of that, I'm from Alaska, but I live in Florida now. I wouldn't wear Alaska clothing to Florida and I wouldn't wear cl- Florida clothing to Alaska. It just doesn't fit what I'm going to be doing there. I wouldn't overpay for the clothing and then I would wear vital clothing first, right? I would wear underwear before I worry about, worry about my Gucci belt or any of those accessory items, right? Same thing with investing is I wouldn't invest in things I don't like, understand that don't fit me, that don't fit my goals, that are overpriced and that are not vital. And so when I look at stocks, for me, the first point is, okay, do I like this? And, and I don't like the stock market. Having, having been a financial advisor, there is a lot of manipulation that happens with it. And it's also not something that I have a great degree of control over. So I'm very big on control. I'm very big on you know, investing in things that I, I can see, touch, visit, have, etc. And then the understanding part, you know, I had my serious licenses, but when it comes down to it, I still can't explain to somebody in a simple language what a stock is. They're kind of, it's almost like fiat currency where a company can issue more and more and more of it. And sure, I have voting rights, but if I go to Apple and I say, here's all my stock, they're not letting me you know, make decisions at Apple. There's a certain degree of, I think with most people, they don't actually understand the stock market well enough to be like, I'm investing in it. Now, if you do, great. You know, that's one of, the, one of the prerequisites to investing in anything is you should have an understanding of it. Okay, So that's kind of the second point. For me, you know, it has to fit me. So I'm trying to build passive income. And so stocks aren't a great way to do that. I can get dividend yielding stocks. But if I can get, you know, let's say I do a, a real estate deal that pays me a 12 to 14% income, on a really good dividend stock, I might get 4 to 6%. And so I've got to have a lot more invested to get that yield off of a stock than I might in a real estate portfolio. So it doesn't quite fit me and it doesn't quite fit my goals. And then the final one, you know, the final two is the pricing. Warren Buffett's very good at this, determining values on stocks. If I were to invest in stocks, I would definitely be a value investor and I'd be looking at it from a mathematical standpoint. I don't think most people do that. I think a lot of people look at more the speculative side of it and what they think is going to happen versus looking at you know the fundamentals of a company and understanding its industry, the economy, because it really is a business you're investing in. It's do I understand the business? And then finally is, is it vital? So I like to invest in things like food, water, clothing, shelter, like stuff that's going to be around no matter what. And so in today's environment, those do exist, but more of the attention is put on you know some of the stocks that are newer, they're more up and coming. And they're maybe not as vital as far as an industry or a market sector. They could be more speculative or exploratory. 
just subjectively, those are kind of my reasons for not doing the stock market. I know people that have, they do very well at it. But I think those, those six points, whether it's stocks or real estate, someone should be able to check those off. I think it's just to your point that you find what resonates well with you and you stick to your strategy. And so that's kind of, again, why I wanted to have you on because your approach is different and it works for you. And there's some other people that might resonate with this more. Maybe they don't have time to analyze stocks all day or they don't want to, or maybe it doesn't actually just interest them in another way interests them more. And there are ways to make as much money doing a different approach. You do talk about gold and silver though as investment. So I'm curious to know how you invest in those if it isn't, I guess, the stock market. The first thing, so I look at it more as a store of value. So I don't look at gold and silver as an investment as much. Most people, it's either going to be a store of value or it's going to be a speculation. And so when I'm looking at it as a store of value, I'm trading paper currency for a real asset, very much akin to like if I was buying acres of land. So I look at buying ounces of gold the same way. For example, I think it's in the early 1900s. A men's suit costed one ounce of gold. It was about $20 at the time. Today, a men's suit costs about you know $1,500 to $2,000 for a good one. And that's also about one ounce of gold. And so it maintains its purchasing power over time. It's something that is a real asset. It is 6,000 years old. It's been the longest existing store of value currency. So these are all reasons why I like it. Like it is it has a great deal of predictability. No matter what currency you price it in, an ounce of gold will always be an ounce of gold. There's always going to have value. And then similar, like if it's an acre of land, if we were on you know a totally different currency system, an acre would still be an anchor. Acre it would still have the same uses and the same purposes. So that's why I like it as a store of value. Similar to the life insurance, you can borrow against gold, and also you can lease gold out for income. So I do both of those strategies. Um, so when I buy gold, it's never just to hold it and hope the price goes up. I know long term it will. Short term, it's going to do whatever it does. Right? I borrow against it, and I know that long term, you know, I'm going to have my growth on it. Usually, if I'm buying, it's a minimum of five years that I expect to keep it for, and then I'm going to take loans against it and invest for income in the meantime, or I'm going to lease it out and just have it generate its own income while I keep it. Can you talk a bit more about that? I am not familiar with that strategy at all. Can you just go a bit deeper into how you're doing that and then how you're borrowing against it? With gold, basically, there's a lot of different ways to buy it. I like to buy the actual physical thing, right? So I will actually buy, you know, whether it's one ounce bars or kilos. My favorite are kilos because it's like in the movies, you see these giant bricks, right? So I like doing those. Those are fun. But basically, you're buying generic investment grade bullion. I stick mostly with gold. Some people might do silver. I don't really do like the commemorative coins or the collector's items. Those are known as numismatic gold. You know, I won't say don't do them, but if you're doing that, it's because you, you're trading based on collector's value, not necessarily based on, you know, trying to get the best cost, right? So if I'm buying bullion, it's, you know, the same no matter what. So I can get the cheapest price. And then basically, you know, I'm sending that typically to a vault. And that vault is going to hold it as collateral. And then I can borrow usually about 75% of the value on a line of credit. My cost of interest might be 4 or 5% total net interest cost. And then long term, you know, when you look at gold from the period of time we've been allowed to own it in the 70s until today, it's averaged about an 8 to 10% compounding annual growth rate. Long term, it's that. Short term, it could be up. It could be down. It's got a standard deviation of about 15%. So it's going to go up 15 above or down 15 below. And then its max drawdown is about 30. So the worst year it ever had was a 30% loss. I'm looking at it from the standpoint of on a graph, I know the trend is going to be about 8. 
it's going to yo-yo 15 up or down. And then worst case scenario, it's going to drop about 30. So I'm going to take a loan against it. And I'm going to basically invest in something that earns me a, a higher interest income than what I'm, what I'm paying on the gold loans. If I'm paying 4 and I do an investment deal that's making me 12 I can service my loan and pay down that line of credit with the income. And then if there is like a margin call, because gold can go down in price, that's that standard deviation. That's where it's different than life insurance. If it does go down in price and they say, Hey, you know, you need to collect your, correct your loan to value ratio. I can either do that through paying down the line of credit or by purchasing more gold. Gold dropped. I'm just going to go buy more because now it's at a cheaper price. I can buy more units of it. And then when it comes back up, I'm better off. That's kind of the, the gold loan aspect. That's how I like to do those. And again, I wouldn't do this. Usually, I'm not going to do this with silver. Silver is a lot more volatile. So the standard deviation on silver is about 25%. But the compounding annual growth rate is about the same. So I'm getting about the same annual return, but with a lot more risk and volatility. If I was trading, maybe I would do silver. But you know, with, with buy and hold, gold is the way that I like to go on that. That's on the loan side. So leasing is a little bit different. So I buy, So I'm still buying physical. And basically with leasing, I'm buying the physical bar. And then there are intermediaries that will find those like that need to lease gold from someone else that could be a bullion dealer, and they need that to fulfill orders, it could be a jewelry shop, and they need that to create product. But basically, I'm going to lease it to them. They're actually going to take possession of my gold, and they're going to use it, they might even sell it, they might melt it down. At the end of the lease, they owe me back the ounces that I gave to them, not the dollars. So the ounces of gold came up. So let's say the dollar price of gold came up. They have to pay me back. You know, if I do a kilo, that's 31.10 ounces. They still have to pay me back with a kilo, even though that kilo costs more than what I leased out to them. Now, while they're leasing it, they're also going to pay me interest. So they're going to pay me typically two to three percent interest per year. So I'm getting the appreciation of the gold. So long term, that might be, let's say, eight percent. And then I might make another two to three percent in income on, on top of that. And so that's how the leasing works. Now, you're not going to do this with just anyone. You're going to do these with big, well-known you know, lessees, essentially. Like You're going to insure it, and it's going to be a legit deal. But that's a great way to get gold to yield income. That's really interesting strategy. I've never heard of that before either. And so when you're leasing your gold, are there any other kind of risks involved or I guess other things investors might want to know? So if you're leasing gold out, the the biggest thing to know is they can like you're not getting back the same literal bar you gave them. They can sell yours, they can melt it down, right? So, you know, they do owe you that bar back. You do have insurance on it. There is collateral posted against it. So it's similar to like um the way car dealerships operate. They have all those vehicles in their inventory. They don't own those. They're they're typically, you know, renting or borrowing that from a manufacturer. And so when they sell it, they have to pay it back to the manufacturer. And it's very similar with gold. So as long as you can wrap your mind, okay, I'm going to give them a kilo. They owe me a kilo back. It's just not the same bar. And you know they did get rid of it. They do owe it back in, in the end of the term. And, and if they don't pay back, I do have insurance in place. That's probably the, the biggest risk is if they don't pay back, then there's probably some time involved with the insurance claim and, and having that pay out. Those are kind of the main risks with it. And again, this is not something you would do with your coworker. Like you're not going to let some random person do it. You're going to do it with, you know, JM Bullion or like these big dealers that are very well known and they are, there's not a high chance of them not paying you back. Is it pretty easy to set up a deal like this? Is there any way that you would maybe not have a deal go through or something? So as long as you go through like a reputable lease provider, you're going to be okay. 
if you try and piece it together on your own, that's where it could get a little bit sketchy, right? You know, not only is there the actual like financial transaction happening, there's legal paperwork, there's collateral, there's insurance. I would liken it to buying like a rental property. Like I might see it on paper and I'm like, that looks like a really good idea. But then I go and buy it and there's property management and taxes and the tenants stole the copper out of the walls. Like there's a bunch of weird stuff that could happen versus if I, if I do that with somebody that's well known, I don't have the same risks. They've already established their systems. They've got all of that figured out. If you're going through an established provider, it gets rid of a lot of the extra risk. If you're doing it yourself, you could potentially make more money because there's not another party involved, you know, collecting a fee or managing things. But at the same time, you know, you don't have the same expertise potentially, and there could be more risks because of that. And I guess the other piece, so you said you lock in a price beforehand, and then you get also paid interest. What is the interest typically that you get on that? Generally, that's going to be about 2 to 4% a year. And that can change with, with uh, supply and demand and also with interest rates. So if there's you know, a very high demand for gold and a low supply, you have the benefit of saying, Hey, I, I know you guys can't get very much gold elsewhere, so I'm going to charge a higher rate. Or if interest rates naturally are higher, you can have a higher rate as well. You know, it could be more, it could be less, but two to four is kind of the safe average. So if someone has some money lying around right now, savings isn't an issue. Where is the best place that to invest right now that millennials should be considering, whether it's alternative investments or something else? What do you think? My answer is always going to be, you know, you are your own best investment first. And so I think that gets overlooked a lot. We do, I mean, investing is fun. So don't get me wrong. It's fun to look at assets. It's fun to buy things. But when I invest in something that improves my skills and my abilities, even today when I do that, the returns on that investment are always greater than whether it be gold, private lending, life insurance, whatever it could be. So if somebody hasn't maximized their skill set yet, whether that's their profession or whether that's, you know, they're in sales and they want to improve at that or they're a marketer or whatever it might be, I would put the money there first and I would, I would, you know, get as good as you can get at the thing that you do to, to produce and generate your active income. And that's going to give you, you know, the ability to have more capital to invest in some of these passive opportunities. The last thing I have also heard you talk about opportunities in alternative investing. Is there anything else in that space that we haven't talked about yet today? Oh, there's a ton still. I mean, there's foreign currency trading, there's life settlement investing, there's oil and gas, there's, you know, seller finance, real estate. Like it's a whole world of other types of investments. And I think for me, coming from Wall Street, that was what intrigued me the most was this is not stuff that's talked about often. And so a lot of people, you know, we go with what we're used to just because that's what we hear about. We don't always know that there's other things out there. So I was someone that once I learned, like, I didn't know you could do this or this or this or this or that these were even options that existed. Then I was like, okay, well, I don't want to just stick with the main thing because that's what I learned. And that's what everyone says you're supposed to do. I want to explore and see what I do like the best. And so there's a whole world out there. A lot of this stuff, you know, if you start researching, you'll just find more and more of it. And, uh, you know, it's exciting. And it's kind of like we talked about, find the stuff you like, find the stuff you're interested in that makes sense for you. I might have to bring you back on and we can discuss some of those more in detail. I do think it's so interesting to learn about these alternative investing strategies, just because if inflation stays this high range, we can expect real returns will be close to zero. 
So where do we achieve our yield over the next decade? Then we can look to other stock markets, but there are some other methods that just might resonate better with people. And so I'm really glad that we had you on today and that you could kind of talk about some of these with us. And I would really be interested in discussing some of those other strategies with you in the future as well. Yeah, that would be awesome. That would definitely be its own podcast episode in itself. So I'd be happy to do that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience connect with you, learn more about you, your work, and everything that you do? So on social media, if you go on Instagram, you can find me just at Jerry Feta, so just my first and last name. And so you, I'm pretty active on there. If you if you want to send a message or connect, go ahead. You can also go to my website. I do have a couple of books. So if you want to get a free copy, I do have my book, Blueprints of Financial Freedom. So if you go to jerryfeta.com forward slash B2F promo, you can grab a free copy of that. And then from there, you know, if you want to connect with my team, send us an email. We'll always be happy to answer questions. Let us know you heard us on Rebecca's podcast and uh, we'll make sure we get a, a consultation set up for you and answer whatever questions you have. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jerry. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.